Hello, uh, I'm Jess Harold, and today we have episode five of our monthly podcast series, In on the Act, in which we discuss a legislative topic with a member of Falcon Chambers. Uh, but for this edition, I'm joined by not one, but two members of Falcon Chambers, uh, Paul Letman and Cecily Crampin. Uh, welcome to you both. Hello. Hi, Jess. Well. Uh, and we're going to be taking a look at the Building Safety Act, which was given royal assent in April. The Act, uh, conceived in response to the Grenfell Tower disaster and the resulting debate on remediating defective cladding, brings into force a raft of changes, including greater protections for leaseholders dealing with the remediation of unsafe cladding, greater powers to support the making of building liability orders and the establishment of three new regulatory bodies, including the Building Safety Regulator. Uh, so, uh, Paul and Cecily, uh, the Building Safety Act has been some time in the making uh, and uh, has been subject to various amendments along the way uh, in its passage through Parliament. I've obviously touched briefly on the background, uh, but perhaps you can go into a little bit more detail for our listeners. Well, you're, you're absolutely right to say that the background to the Act uh, was the um, Grenfell Tower fire of the 14th of June 2017 and the tragic events that unfolded on, on that night. Uh, and of course, the building safety issues and the combustible cladding uh, issues that arose out of that. Um, I think it's fair to say that when the bill was first introduced, it was very heavily criticised. Uh, and uh, it wasn't until January of this year that Michael Gove really seized on the issues. Um, uh, because up until then, the sort of protections that leaseholders were looking for just couldn't, weren't really there, certainly not mm. to the extent that everyone was hoping for. Uh, and in January, um, he introduced a raft of changes uh, to the bill, uh, and those were debated in the House of Lords at length, uh, and um, they were introduced, they were, I think, broadly mm. adopted uh, and became part of the, the act that we now have that was passed on the 28th of April. Uh, so, uh, yes, it does now do uh, quite a lot uh, and has introduced some pretty fundamental and profound changes. So before we dig into the, the detail of what, what the Act does, I mean, what are some of the key issues that, that you've been dealing with uh, in relation to cladding over the last five years that you've been having to advise on? I think the first thing to note is actually that we've I think this is true of Cecily as well, is that we've um, we've been advising a whole range of, of stakeholders and tenants and tenants groups, landlords, um, developers and also contractors. Um, and the sort of issues that I've, I've been dealing with have sort of followed, I think, the events uh, mm. since the fire and the, and the statutory developments that have uh, taken place. So I think we probably both began looking at waking watch um, costs and the recoverability of those sorts of um, costs uh, and equally the the cost of uh, the immediate measures like the installation of of sounding alarms, um, uh, dispensation applications. That was something we were looking at early on. Uh, then we had you know, appealing or responding to improvement notices, and the, and then as 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 things have developed, you know, we've been advising on on major works liability, um, service charge recovery, who to sue. Um, that sort of thing. I mean, I've been looking at limitation standstill agreements, which have been you know, very much at the fore. Uh, and then some interesting assignment black hole type issues. Of, of mm -hmm. And I think now now we've moved on uh, to looking at the regulations, the, new, the most recent regulations, 711 and 859, who can recover who from what from whom, who's liable mm -hmm. for what. I mean, that has changed the landscape. Uh, so I think um, yeah, I mean, uh, what about you, Cecily? I, uh, I think that's what I've been looking at. 
Yeah, so before the Act came into force, lots of the things that Paul was talking about, the Defective Premises Act kinds of claims and general sort of service charge questions. But since the Act has come into force, a lot of um, focus for me on on, on service charges and how the service charge limits uh, imposed by Part 5 of the Act work. And one thing just, you know, I don't want to obviously repeat the list that Paul has just gone. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we come up with very similar issues. Um, one thing to mention that I think is of interest and not not very well worked out is um, what the status is for management companies. So named management companies in the lease with maintenance obligations. And they're the people who get the service charges, often lessee owned. So don't have assets are only going to be able to recover from lessees and usually only recover for the service charges. And where they stand under these limits, that's a very interesting problem because the Act uh, excludes some of the service charge limitations for lessee owned freeholders. So if you've been franchised, for example, but don't, doesn't have that effect for, for those kinds of management companies which don't have an estate. So they're often in sort of slightly tricky situations, sort of left with the responsibility and not necessarily a way of getting the, the money back. So that's that's an interesting problem. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. As with any legislation, it must bring a raft of uh, new questions that you, you have to dig into and try and answer. Um, so the Act uh, is is expansive. And it brings about significant change in in relation to historic safety defects on higher risk buildings. So what are we talking about when we refer to higher risk buildings? So higher risk buildings, those you see under parts um, three and four, um, variously, are uh, buildings um, 18 metres high or seven storeys high. So it's like difference between um, parts three and four. Yes, I think that's right. You've got to be you've got to be alive to those differences. Uh, mm. In fact, under under the part three, you're, you're looking at buildings of that kind. Uh, but actually, when you get to some of the residential provisions, uh, you're looking at uh, you're tending to look at uh, higher risk buildings that are occupied buildings. Um, and then when we get to part five now, we're, we're looking at relevant buildings, which I, mm. uh, which of course, I mean that was one of the. The changes that was introduced in the House of Lords and then adopted in in the in the Act that we're now looking at buildings of 11 metres and, and five storeys. Um, so um, I think that's the range of premises. Mm-hmm. Okay. Another to possibly note also about higher risk buildings is so an awful lot of this um, Act is not actually yet in force and there are quite a lot of consultations going on about mm-hmm. parts of it. And one of the things about higher risk buildings is. Um, the consultation exactly how the definitions work, how you're actually going to measure, etc. Uh, consultation, I think, closed in July on that particular um, problem. So there'll there'll be more to know about higher risk buildings. <laughs> we, we we may well cover that uh, yeah. in some form going forward. So um, at this point, uh, could you just sort of give us an overview of the main provisions of the Act? So as we've already mentioned, the Building Safety Act is an extensive piece of legislation, making lots of different changes in lots of different areas, probably dividing, broadly speaking, into regulation changes that regulatory changes on the one hand and sort of private law changes. So service charge recovery, et cetera, on the other hand. Um, yes. Yeah, and, and as I think I've already possibly mentioned, not all of the Act is yet in force and there mm. are consultations on various parts of it, um, in particular about the, the Builder Regulation uh, what is in force is, um, and uh, what has attracted most commentary is part five and schedule eight, that's the service charge provisions and the changes to the Defective Premises Act in particular limitation. So, Paul, I think you're, you might mention something about what, what's yeah, going on. Yeah, just picking up on the on the regulatory changes there, actually. Um, I think it's worth just 
recognizing that, that uh, under part two we've got the introduction of the building safety regulator and that's obviously mm -hmm. absolutely central to uh, the changes that are being introduced I mean, their their primary responsibility is to secure the safety of people in and around buildings and improve building standards um, there's also a new building control regime uh, which you find in, in part three uh, of the act uh, and then under part four, you've got um, provisions for the management of high risk buildings um, with pr provision there for the uh, well, there's a new definition of the accountable person uh, mm -hmm. or the principal accountable person uh, who takes responsibility for uh, for the building. Uh, and there's a range of duties on, on them to improve safety. But I suppose so, you know, probably one ought to focus on, on the building. Uh, safety regulators' um, responsibilities or, or, or duties, since they're so central to, to the scheme of the Act. Um, as I said, their, their primary duty is about uh, the safety of uh, people and, uh, and buildings um, and to um, facilitate improvements in, in the competence uh, of persons in, in the built environment industry, which is a new rather umbrella definition that we uh, find in the Act. Um, I mean, they're given various powers, I think, to do this. Um, they can, um, they've given the power to serve compliance notices um, and they can also put a building, and this is quite interesting, I mean, we haven't got there yet, uh, but to, uh, to put a building into special measures by the appointment of a, a special measures manager under Schedule 7. Uh, if the principal accountable person is failing in their obligations, uh, apart from that, uh, I suppose the, the main duties are uh, or responsibilities are to advise and make recommendations to the Secretary of State on regulation. So they're involved in that process. And the whole idea is to create this ever in, uh, improving and accountable structure for improving building safety and, and competence uh, of those people in the industry. So that, that's why the, the regulator is also made the, the building control authority. Uh, mm -hmm. for high-risk buildings uh, and is put in charge of the regulation of the building control profession. I mean, not just the local authority building inspectors, but also the new building control approvers who will who are uh, will take the place uh, of the existing approved inspectors um, and uh, and there are increased obligations and, and duties on them, which obviously, which as some may know, I've been pushing for for some time. <laughs> um, <laughs> reference the decision in Heron's Court. Uh, so, uh, so I think those are probably the main regulatory uh, changes. Uh, and then, as Cecily mentions, we've got the amendments to the landlord and tenant legislation. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I've mentioned already that part five has these service charge provisions, um, mm -hmm. in service charge recoverability. But there's some other things that are done um, in the Act that uh, directly affect the relationship between landlords and uh, tenants. So, part four puts in some amendments uh, to the Landlord and Tenant Acts 1985 and 1987, uh, really to, to pick up on this um, building safety stuff that Paul's been talking about. So implying terms um, as to building safety um, and, and also for recovery of costs through the service charge of some of the duties that are imposed um, in part for, um, uh, for the accountable person and so on. Um, although excluding uh, recoverability of costs of complying with the special measures orders that Paul mentioned. There's also um, in part five um, going to be, though they're not yet enforced, some interesting uh, additions um, to the Landlord and Tenant Act 1985. Really picking up a sort of slightly potentially different um, topic in landlord and tenant, residential landlord and tenant law entirely. 
Um, so there are um, these uh, new provisions, um, going to be a new section 20D, which will require the landlord to take reasonable steps in relation to remediation works um, on certain buildings of a prescribed description. I don't think we yet have to take reasonable steps to ascertain if costs can be paid by a grant or from a third party. So that's including um, under insurance, for example, but also under claims you might have it against a developer. Um, and that's a sort of quite an interesting vexed problem in um, service charge law, a case called Oliver and Sheffield City Council from the Court of Appeal in 2017 touched on this, um, which uh, is very difficult to, to, to try and stop paying service charges because um, the landlord ought to have um, got the money off someone else. I mean, I was quite interested by that because I think it answers the questions that were posed by that decision. That's right. Um, yeah. That you've got to go after the money, and if you and if you and if you don't, and the tenants can show show you that you haven't, then you won't be able to recover what service charges charges you might otherwise have been able to recover. So I think in yeah, some sense, this is a much needed thing. change. This piece of legislation, um, but quite to its extent. So what it's going to be, what's going to be covered by remediation works, for example, is not yet um, clear. Mm. We'll need to see some regulations. So I'm just mm. noting that as one to watch. Um, how mm -hmm. far beyond these kind of um, fire safety type problems, and it goes goes further um, into well, service charges. Yes, in terms of getting further, actually, I think part five goes even further. I mean, there are all sorts of there are other things in there. Um, we've got the remediation orders or provision for remediation orders where um, tenants and interested parties can compel the carrying out of the works, um, mm -hmm. requisite works. Uh, and then that's under section 123. And then in the next section, we've got the uh, remediation contribution orders to require a landlord or, or a developer to contribute to the costs of remedy. And these tie in, I think, with the service charge uh, limitations that Cecil has just mentioned. Beyond that, we've got other important provisions like the introduction of the building industry scheme, the building industry scheme, as it, it seems to be, and that ties in with um, the ability of developers to, to carry out future development. And and, uh, and so, uh, and I think reference the, the pledge letters that have been sent out by the, um, the Secretary of State uh, and, um, the pressure that they're putting developers on at the moment. Um, then there are other things that I think we'll come to, but uh, there's the High Court jurisdiction to make building liability orders uh, against developers who failed to meet a relevant liability. And then part five also contains the changes to the DPA, um, which I think we'll come to in, in greater detail in a moment. But uh, the new limitation periods, the proposed ombudsman scheme, provision for warranties and for uh, and then the regulation of construction products. So there is an awful lot in there. Uh, certainly a lot, a lot of ground to cover and we'll, we'll come on to some of those points in a little bit more detail. But um, uh, as part of the structure that you, you mentioned, Paul, that, that there's a, a statutory waterfall um, for, yes. for, for dealing with claims. So, so how, well, yes. how does that work? Well, the statutory waterfall or, or cascade, as it fairly <laughs> referred to, I mean, there were, there's been a lot of discussion about this and I think I mean, Cecily and I, I look very closely, closely at this. Um, it, it really comes out of the new um, SI 859 uh, regulations uh, and the way in which responsibility is shared between different landlords. I mean, there are three key paragraphs. It ties in to the, uh, again, to the, the limitations on, on recovery of, of service charge. Um, so, but there, but there are some, some some rather difficult provisions within those uh, those regulations to understand. I think we we looked at those. I think Cecily quite um, in in terms. 
We did. So um, just to, to locate this a bit more, as Paul said, we're in part five. So these are um, in relation to works to the buildings that are at least 11 metres or five storeys high. And we're talking mm -hmm. about what's called relevant works. Um, uh, so works relating to uh, something which causes a risk to safety from the far, from far or building collapse. And as we've already mentioned, part five is really about limiting service charges, but also makes provision for um, recovery of um, costs from people you wouldn't normally get um money for them. So mm. we're recovering costs from from other people. And that's where the statutory waterfall comes in. And uh, as Paul mentioned, they, um, the statutory waterfall is fleshed out in the set of regulations 859. So that's building safety, leaseholder protections, information, etc. England regulations 2022. So that trips off the tongue very nicely. <laughs> in terms of the waterfall, I think what we thought was going to happen and how it was going to work is that there would be the responsible developer and that they they would pay. And if they weren't good for the money, then it would be distributed amongst landlords who potentially could pay. And if not them, then it would cascade down from that point to, to others who, who who had an interest in, in the relevant premises. But I think when, when we looked at it, essentially, we, 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 I think we came to the conclusion that it actually worked possibly the other way around, that you start under under regulation three with the responsible developer. And then I think as you work through, because you've got the clause within each of those regulations that says, well, you can recover under this, but not if you can recover under four or five. And then when you get to four, it says you can recover under this, but not if you can recover under three or you can recover under five. And then when you get to five, you know what comes next. You can recover under that, but not if you can recover under three or four. Now, we... I think we came to the conclusion that that, that re reverses the, the way it's hit. We, did, we did, Paul. I mean, it was uh, our first worry was that it didn't work at all. So this, <laughs> I fancy, as a, a former mathematical logician, um, somehow you've got, got a, a fundamental logical circularity. And that, no was, that was certainly my instinct as you were yeah. just going through it. And so... Um, what we then discussed was, well, you start under Regulation 3 and you've got to exclude anything you can get under Regulation 4. And essentially, if you work that through, it it throws you onto Regulation 5 as your starting point, as it were, in a sort of. And that, that's the way that's why developer ended up being the person who got you had recovery from um, uh, the last in the list, because it's only Regulation 5 that you knew or you'd already knocked out the other regulations. In the end, I think the effect is a cascade that you, know, that the, you end up distributing liability between, if, if they're available, between these different new types of, of building owners. So the, mm. the building owner who has the 100% interest is, the, is, I think, the type one owner. Uh, and then the type two owner is effectively, they have a, a two-thirds interest and the type three uh, although the percentages are slightly different, I accept. But, but the, the type three owner has essentially a third interest, so 40% or less uh, interest in the building. And then the liability for service charges, let's be clear, that can't be recovered from the tenants for the mm. various reasons that are specified within Schedule 8, and depending on which one they are, you've moved through regulations 3, 4 and 5. But those building, uh, the liability for those irrecoverable service charges is then distributed between those different types of, of building owner, according to a, a, a formula which is set out within the regulations, uh, which is one over three n, you know, two n and one n, which means that the 
I think we're agreed on this. You're the mathematician, mm -hmm. uh, essentially. That that means that the building owner with the greatest interest will pay three times as much as the next one. So it's really a ratio of three to one uh, as you work through the different type of building owner. It, these are not easy. Uh, no, no. To, to, I think I think we can agree on that much. We can agree on that. I mean, yeah. we're slightly surprised at the at the way they they work. So. We'll have to see what what comes next, but uh, I mean, certainly we've taken a view, and I think we've both now had to advise already on the effects of these uh, and try and work as, as people are working out. I mean, this is very new uh, legislation, so absolutely. So before we move off the um, waterfall, there's a point I wanted to make about it and about Part Five more generally. Mm -hmm. The waterfall um, is actually about landlords left with. Um, a liability that they can't get through the service charges, getting money off other landlords or developers, as we've sketched out. One of the things that's um, odd about part five is the way it's been, in some sense, is sold by government in government guidance. So there's a bit of government guidance, guidance called leaseholder frequently asked questions from 28th of June 2022, for example, who say, which says, um, who is liable to pay for the building safety repairs on my building? And the answer is given is, uh, building owners and higher landlords, and that they must always ensure work is done to keep buildings safe. This is a legal requirement, it says. But one of the things that part five, I think one should emphasise, does not do is actually impose that liability if it doesn't already exist somewhere else. Yeah, I and I think that's a thing that's really yeah. important to emphasise, because there are two things that leaseholders need. One is they need not to have to pay through the service charge for these kinds of remediation works for things that are not their fault. But they do also need these works to be done. Mm. And what part five, despite what I've just read out, doesn't do is actually force them to be done if there's no liability. And that's a, that whether there is such a liability is often a problem, for example, under leases, because um, if you have a landlord repairing obligation, it doesn't necessarily pick up defects where the product was wrong, if you see what I mean, which well, is right. Yeah. Um, so if you don't already have a liability under your lease or alternatively potentially under some other piece of legislation like fire safety orders and so on, you may have an argument or indeed under the Defective Premises Act, you might actually end up having an argument about whether works to be done at all. And one final thing um, to say is, so uh, we mentioned in the outline um, remediation orders, for example. So remediation orders allow you to go to the tribunal, the first tier tribunal, to ask for an order that your landlord actually does these works, for example. But it is dependent, a remediation order is dependent on the landlord having liability as it's defined in the Act. Um, and so not only does the remediation order not solve this problem, but also um, you may very, find, may very well find in tribunals um, having to argue about liabilities under things like fire safety orders or alternatively the Defective Premises Act, which is, it seems to me, on first blush, an odd place to have that argument. An outline of what appears to me, and maybe we'll get fleshed out later, a, a bit of a, a black hole in, in the legislation. Hopefully this will be a little bit more straightforward. You, you mentioned, um, Paul, uh, limitation periods uh, a little while ago. Um, so in terms of making claims under the Act, how long do, pe do, do people have and, and, and when does the clock start ticking? Yes, this is a little bit more straightforward, uh, as, as you say. <laughs> I think the Act does three main things. In, in, mm. uh, let's try and sort of distill it down there in, in relation to, to building works. But firstly, it introduces this a new cause of action uh, uh, under the um, Defective Premises Act mm -hmm. um, in relation to, to works that any 
part of a relevant building. I mean, at the minute, the se um, section one of the DPA deals with works uh, in relation to the provision of a, of a, of a dwelling. This extends it to uh, in relation uh, to works at any part of a relevant building. So, so we've yeah. got that. So there's this uh, you know, enlargement of the scope of the mm -hmm. obligation. But coming back to your your time and limitation type point, it, uh, yes, the the act does introduce a new 15 year limitation period for claims under the defective premise and section 38 of the Building Act 1984, as and when it comes in to, to force. Um, it's always been enforced in relation to the making of regulations, but it, it isn't fully enforced. But we can expect that. But that's in relation to claims occurring after commencement of the of the Building Safety Act. Mm -hmm. So that's your new 15 year. And then the big talking point um, is the, the this new um, uh, retrospective uh, limitation period, 30 year limitation period uh, with retrospective effect in respect of claims under Section 1 of the DPA accruing before commencement uh, of of the Building Safety Act. So, yeah, I mean, that that's the really what has been the big talking point mm. in effect reviving those claims which would otherwise be be statute barred i mean there are there are a couple of points to note uh, important points to note of course about that mm. um, i mean i think i've said in another talk that what it gives with one hand it seems to take with the other i mean it's perhaps a slightly uh, overstated uh, criticism but um, there is there is uh, the act does in relation to the retrospective provision because that's uh, unusual to find retrospective provisions in legislation mm. of this kind. Absolutely. Um, it does provide a human rights defence to any such claim. So that if the court, you know, the court must dismiss the claim if it's necessary to do so to avoid a breach of the defendant's convention right. Secondly, of course, there's the overriding caveat uh, that it um, that, that this doesn't revive claims if they've been the subject of, of settlement or if they've been finally determined before commencement of the Building Safety Act. Um, so, so, that, so, so I think that I mean that's what everyone's been talking about in relation mm. to DPA claims. I mean, not not forgetting also that you've got um, uh, the Act introduces similar provisions in relation to cladding products. So we've got this new liability for cladding products under Section 149 uh, and for past defaults, and that ha and that has similar provisions of um, a 15 year a new 15 year limitation period for future claims and and a retrospective. 30-year limitation period for, for past claims in respect of uh, the cladding products. Um, so, and again, but you've got the you've got the same um, human rights uh, defence to those kind of claims. I think in this context, I suppose one should also think about the new building warranties, um, which will which developers will have to provide, um, which will be 15 years rather than, as we all know, the current 10 years. So, um, tell me a little bit uh, about these building liability orders. Yes, well, the, the building liability order I mean, can be made under some of the jurisdiction for it is under Section 130, uh, and that provides that the High Court can make an, an order providing that any relevant liability, which is a liability under the DPA or Section 38 of the Building Act, or as a result of a building safety risk in relation to a relevant building, uh, is, is also an, a liability of another specified company or the joint and several liability of two or more. Uh, specified companies uh, and an order of this kind can be made uh, if it's just and equitable our old friend uh, just and equitable to do so um, and I think I think the idea the fundamental idea behind this uh, was that 
so many developers um, use special purpose vehicles for individual developments um, who may not be holding, they have the assets to meet, to meet the claims. Uh, so it was thought that it was very important to introduce a provision of this kind so that associated uh, companies uh, can be made liable. So you don't end up with your, you know, your developer or your, your, your landlord developer being a shell company from whom you, you can't recover. So I, 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 the idea was to be able to go after associates. I think that's right, isn't it? That, that is right. Um, and the definition of associate, well, I won't give it in detail, but it's the kind of definition you'd expect from you know, places where you see similar concepts in the Companies Act 2006, for example. So it's, you know, one company controls the other or a third controls both. Um, slightly more detailed um, definition, but it yeah. is a, an interesting innovation because it really is piercing the corporate veil. Yes, it does so in a, in a slightly, as you said, in a slightly <laughs> different way. I mean, it is unique to this act. It is mm. a speak. I mean, they haven't they haven't adopted the the definitions no. in the Companies Act. So, I mean, one has to look quite closely, I think, at, at what is an associate in this context um, and work that out. Um, and one thing just to, to pick up on it, um, what the Act also does is allow the High Court to make an order that um, a, a company, for example, a developer, has to give information and documents about persons who, who are yeah. associated. So just so that, you know, that would all be very good. But I mean, how would you know? Um, here's, here's a provision that allows you to get some information if that's what you what you need. And as well as all this under the Act to grapple with, um, we also uh, have a recent decision. Um, in uh, Martlett Homes Limited versus Mullally and Co Limited, uh, which uh, the, the first post-Grenfell um, judgment uh, of an English court on a claim for the cost of replacing combustible cladding. Um, so what are the, the lessons uh, learned from that case and, and its significance? Yeah, well, it's, it's an important, and as you say, you know, the first um, uh, landmark, well, this is a landmark decision really mm. now. Um, I mean, the facts were very straightforward, just to cover those. Um, and Martlett was the owner, um, the claimant was the owner of, uh, of five tower blocks in Gosport, and they were claiming £8 million or, or thereabouts against the, the defendant, um, their design and build contractor, uh, for costs that um, they'd incurred in 2017 in investigating and replacing combustible external wall rendered cladding, EW. One or EWI one that had been fitted with the works were, were carried out in 2005 2008, um, and also they, they were recovering not just uh, or seeking to recover not just the cost of the works but providing waking watch as a fire precaution. So it has lots of the familiar issues are are, tied, are involved in the in what is it a, a very lengthy judgment. The, the claims uh, were for breach of contract both in installation. Um, breaches in relation to the fire barrier and the insulation uh, board defects, uh, applying the adhesive in the wrong way, dabbing it rather than the, the requisite uh, sausage that, were, that would have, you know, I, I think, prevented uh, the voids. Um, and then there were also claims for uh, or, uh, for specification breaches, relying on the employer's requirements um, to follow specifically requirements, directions, recommendations and advice. Uh, and also uh, for um, breach of the building regulations functional requirement B4, uh, which is has been front and centre uh, of uh, of these sorts of, of claims. Uh, that's the regulation that provides that external walls of a building shall adequately resist the spread of fire over walls, etc. 
Um, so you have the, both the installation and the specification breach claims, and then you've got some breach of warranty claims and claims in, in negligence in relation to the, the design. The, the, the decision was that the contractor was liable uh, both in relation to, to installation and specification uh, breaches, uh, in particular on the basis of the, the building research establishment guidance of 2003 um, did amount to a recommendation or advice uh, requiring performance um, testing uh, for the for the building um, for or for the the five towers. Uh, so um, the claimant building owner was was successful there. I, I should add that the, the building warranty claims were rejected because it, mm. I think it was um, determined there wasn't a, a warranty of any uh, that was uh, relevant. Um, uh, and then the um, uh, the contractor was also held liable for breach of the obligation to exercise reasonable skill and care, so it's, it's, it's very important from, from that point of view. Uh, and on the basis of, of those breaches, uh, the court determined that, uh, or awarded the higher costs of replacement rather than repair, as well as the, the waking watch costs. So it is, it is uh, plainly an important decision, as I say, mm -hmm. covering a lot of these issues. Uh, and I imagine there'll be, there'll be further claims coming to court uh, in the wake of that decision, and possibly well, more I, places I to discuss yeah, going forward. I mean, uh, there's, there's much that, that is instructive uh, in, in the decision. Um, one doesn't want to overstate the importance of it at the mm -hmm. same time, uh, I think, because if you look at the breach of contract um, claims, um, well, the installation was specific to the to, to the errors that were made in, in relation to the installation, or, or so that's pretty fact specific. Mm. But equally, the the breach of contract claims were very much based on the specific contractual terms, and and, and I think even uh, when you look at the liability issues, um, it, it did turn on 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 the evidence that was adduced in relation to the um, whether the the specification met, in point of fact, met. The Annex A performance standards, uh, and one sees that the, the, the judge decided on the balance of probabilities that um, it wasn't shown that the cladding would have met the British standard test, but but he actually decided the issue on the balance of probabilities. He wasn't prepared to go as far as to say that um, the, the cladding wouldn't have met um, those performance standards. So so it's pretty evidence based. The, the decision. Um, as for uh, as for the decision on on, on the negligence issue, again, I, I suppose one could, one could say that's quite product specific. Um, here, the the external wall system uh, only had a 1995 BBA certificate. Um, uh, in terms of negligence, was that that enough for a designer to be satisfied um, that uh, it would comply with the building regulations? The judge took took the view not. But at the same time. Uh, it, it, it is uh, very significant in terms of what the judge said about the Boland test when one thinks mm -hmm. about um, negligence, uh, because having decided that the, the, that the specified system was non-compliant, he then took the view that um, he, he wasn't going to accept that there was a responsible body of professional opinion that would have specified it. So you had those sort of familiar arguments. Well, mm. this was a prevalent clamping system at the time. Designers were specifying it that was being incorporated in, in lots of designs and therefore knew it, it wasn't negligent uh, to have specified that. And, and the judge rejected that. So plainly that's important. I mean, that. Uh, but, but again, the, these decisions will each depend on, on, the, on not so much on their own facts, but on, on, on the evidence that you then 
uh, bring to trial. So, um, but but yeah, I mean, it, it looks at the challenges to the waiting watch costs as well, and uh, and and uh, I mean that's a lot of familiar arguments in there. Mm -hmm. See, so it's instructive to see how the judge uh, dealt with that. And I, I, I and and I found also actually the way in which the judge looked at the cost claims, which was quite interesting, because you always say, well, look, can you recover everything that I, you know, can I recover everything I've paid to the contractor? Uh, and the judge goes through um, the, the different costs, whether it be replacement costs or remedial costs, disallowing some. It's, it's interesting to look at how, mm -hmm. how he approached that. So there's a lot in there. Undoubtedly, there's a lot in the case, which is helpful. And finally, just to return uh, to the Act, uh, we've mentioned a few times along the way that, 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 that certain question marks do remain uh, to be fleshed out with, with further regulations. So do we, do we have a, a likely uh, timetable for the Act to, to, to fully come into force? And, and what preparation uh, do you think landlords and developers uh, should be carrying out uh, to prepare for its implementation? I, I think it would be too strong a statement to say we have a timetable for the rest of the act. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there are some things we know. So, for example, um, we've, we've mentioned some of the regulations. So um, I think there have been six sets of set of regulations that have um, been passed so far. And two of them are uh, commencement regulations. And so some of those put in timetables for various mm -hmm. things. We've just had um, 1st of September, building industry schemes and prohibitions on development and building control coming to force. So section 126 around there, uh, some of the other sections around there. Then 1st of October, section 160, housing complaints to housing ombudsman, that's changes to the Housing Act 1996. So those are uh, supposed to come on into force on the 1st of October. So that's 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 helpful. That's a bit concrete. Um, mm -hmm. But other things um, going to be much more difficult. Um, and there are lots of consultations going on. Um, to, to lead to the things coming into force. So I mentioned the consultations just closed, but there's some other consultations in force now that people might actually want to know about and contribute to. So there's a, a consultation on the building control regime for those higher risk buildings. So and the wider changes to building regulations, how exactly that's going to work. That's, um, I think, on until the 12th, 12th of October. Uh, then there's a call for evidence. This is a bit of a, a little bit of a different thing. A call for evidence about how to deal with lessee uh, owned buildings. So I think I mentioned before that um, they're excluded from the Part 5 service charge uh, limits. And there's a question about what, what you actually should do about those. Mm -hmm. That call for evidence is 14th of November. Sorry, that's a bit of a side issue because it's mm -hmm. about the act coming into force, but it's interesting in its own yeah, way. Yeah, there's lots of lots of issues so to, be, to, to be yeah. worked out. If you out. ask how people can uh, prepare, or landlords and developers can prepare, I think if you're a landlord, um, you'll already want to be reviewing um, liability conditions under Schedule 8 in terms of mm -hmm. what you can recover, um, you know, whether under Paragraph 2, uh, the landlord or any superior landlord was responsible for the relevant defect, um, whether the uh, landlord under qualifying lease meets the Paragraph 3 contribution condition, to the, the, the end times 2 million uh, condition, or whether the financial limits under for which is the flat value limits apply or not, uh, or the cap under under Regulation 5 in, in Schedule 8. Um, I suppose they should be looking now at whether to seek a, a remediation as landlords, um, uh, a remediation contribution order against other landlords, that's something they should be doing now, um, or whether they should be 
looking for a, a payment of a remediation amount under the, the regulations uh, SIA 59 that we've, we've spoken about. Um, they also um, should looking forward, I, I think um, we've got part four will come in, but as you say, not quite, it's not entirely clear when and, and in what sequence, if you will. Uh, but I think they can prepare in terms of thinking about who will be the accountable person or who will be the principal accountable person, and then consider all the duties that will 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 arise or, or uh, will be imposed on them as as a result of that. Um, the, the raft of duties, registration of of uh, high risk buildings, building assessment notices, building safety strategies, residence engagement strategies, all of the those those obligations that are coming down the tracks. So they want to be looking at those and how they uh, will fulfill them in due course. Developers and house builders in terms of preparation, um, I, I know they're very taken up at the moment with the, the pledge letter and uh, dealing with the d demands, I think, for reimbursement of the building safety fund. Um, I mean, they'll want to be thinking about building schemes and the introduction of the building scheme um, and making preparation, I suppose, on the ground for the extended warranties that we've uh, spoken about. Uh, then, so far as tenants are concerned, um, well, yeah, I mean, if the landlord hasn't got on with the works, that they could think about making a remediation order or applying for a remediation order, um, mm -hmm. as Cecily just mentioned. Um, I think there's an important, actually, for tenants, almost as a last word, I think, um, it's very important for them to assess whether they've got a Defective Premises Act claim mm -hmm. where potentially the liability period expires within the first year since the passing of the Act because you know, that, the so-called initial period uh, will run from 28th of June this year to 28th mm -hmm. of June ne next year. Uh, and, if, and if potentially their DPA claim does expire within that period, that they have to bring the claim within the initial period, otherwise mm. Otherwise, that will be lost. So that that's certainly something tenants want to be thinking about now as well. Absolutely, uh, and uh, that seems sounds like a good place to to leave things off. I'm sure there's plenty more uh, that you could both say uh, about this uh, legislation. But uh, thank you for sharing uh, your thoughts with us today. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, you have been listening to In on the Act uh, from EG. Uh, for more on the Building Safety Act and related case law, uh, please do see the EGI archive at egi.co.uk.